Brandon. Chris. Hi. Our Twitter exploded today. It did a little bit, yes. <laughs> uh, that was cool. Yehuda Katz of many of internet fame, king of the internet, Yehuda Katz, uh, likes our podcast. Or at least one episode of it. He did like one of them. He hit that little heart it. button and it was he didn't realize it was connected straight to the dopamine delivery systems in our brains and that like button released dopamine and oxytocin and uh, the chemicals in our brain are like we are valid human beings now because someone <laughs> we admire liked something that we ever did uh that's i mean i can just die happy now quite yeah. frankly well to be fair this all like i actually have not caught up on this twitter thread yet and the, your 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 mentions chain can get a little out of hand i you get to know what it's like to be famous on Twitter for like 15 minutes. And during that time, I'm like, wow. <laughs> I hope I don't stay famous on Twitter. This is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. They have different management strategies, I assume. I really think we should try to have him on, even though this was not the purpose of this podcast to interview uh, people we admire. <laughs> not other even than, a tiny bit. <laughs> other than but, each other. But you said, you said he called me out for honeymoon phasing. He did. Which... I, I, that, that implies that I'm honeymoon phasing. I disagree. Defend yourself. So I want to have that. You knave. We have to have you on the podcast because (laughs) I will not be silenced. (laughs) Not as long as I have this microphone and our lovely, intelligent, very good looking group of listeners. Just fantastic bunch. Amazing, right? To a person. Attractive. (laughs) It's incredible. It's also very weird that Simplecast tells us that, but I mean, you know what? You can't argue with the statistic. Simplecast V2, where they tell you average attractiveness on a on a 1 to 10 rating, and it's like 9.2, which, you know, you might be like, you know, there are some people that will be like, hey, where's the 10? But it's like, I'm going to take 9.2, and I think yeah. you guys should too. I mean, you got to know when to hold them. <laughs> uh, I also didn't tell you this. I came prepared. I am actually drinking... A real whiskey tonight. Oh, that that's all. Is that just whiskey? No, this is whiskey. No, <laughs> this, this <laughs> large like, beverage here. Either the camera is severely distorting your glass. Or no, you had it's a, a very bad day. It's a whiskey soda. Um, ah, nice. So, what, yeah, what kind of whiskey? It's called. It's a local one called Nine Banded, and a friend of mine won like a case of it in a raffle, and she was handing out like Halloween candy at work, and I was like, I will take one. That way, I have a glass to raise in my podcast and feel like I've grown up. Not as much in this glass and not as much after creating a Japanese highball out of it, which I learned is what the name of this drink is. Really? I didn't know that. It's not bad. It's uh, it's a little spicy, a little woody. I don't know. I have the, I have the palate of a goat when it comes to whiskey. <laughs> I, have, I have this tiny bottle of Jameson. Mm, that makes me think that- of my friend Jameson. Oh, yeah, he's also good. Yeah. Uh, but I bought it while I was in San Francisco and then drank almost none of it because I was in San Francisco for work, which meant I was both very tired and very dehydrated at the end of every day. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to drink some now. Excellent. I've never been able to drink on a trip. I just can't. Like, on a, I'll go on a trip for you know a conference or something, and I, know I might have a drink at the conference meetup or whatever. But I, I like, I don't know. Like my wife is like, oh, you should have a drink at the airport and relax. And I'm like, I, I don't, I can't drink in situations of stress. I just want to stress out. Yeah. Like my, my whole, my whole system is just going haywire already. I don't need to add alcohol. Right. I'm, if, if I, if I get tipsy and somehow that is mixed in with missing a flight, I'm going to be super upset. So yeah. I'm, I'll I mean, have to drink so many more expensive airport drinks to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> incorrect. I'm going to have a Red Bull and just stress out and get to my gate on time. You told me that you were thinking about me today because of a training. So stop. Stop. Let me let me tell this story because you are making it sound way weirder than it actually you is. You weirdo. The reason I haven't caught up on my f- text today is my phone was blowing up while I was in a leadership training that my company sent me to. And one of the activities that we did was an active listening exercise. Mm-hmm. And it had, there was like really like literally an hour and a half or more 
um, maybe two hours of this training was all focused on learning and practicing active listening techniques. And I thought about you almost the entire time. I wanted to tell the people around me the story of how I started learning to practice active listening. <laughs> and it started the day that you and I sat down and I was your manager and you're like, Brandon, you need to know something about yourself. You're a shitty listener. You're a good <laughs> dude, but you're a shitty listener. Yep. That was the beginning <laughs> of a beautiful friendship. That's a thing that happened. And I think that's one of the kindest things anybody's ever done for me. Yeah. Because it's so easy to be polite and try to keep things on an even keel. But to be like, hey, man, you got mustard on your shirt. Also, you're a shitty listener. <laughs> People need friends like that. I think I think that's really been a central theme of our whole friendship at this point. And also kind of our podcast, now that I think about it, that like, <laughs> yeah. we are we are pretty honest uh, with each other, uh, but also we're pretty honest but also in a loving way about a lot of the things that we're talking about right yeah and i want to i want that to be like a hallmark um because it really is the thing that's most authentic about our friendship is that is how raw and uh real you have kind of helped me become as a person who's by default a people pleaser so anyway, I thought about you during that whole exercise and realized I have a huge head start on all these people who are like just getting their arms around the idea of active listening. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm glad that all of those things happened. Yeah. Also, did you win at active listening? <laughs> I did. It, 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 they said Hell it wasn't yeah. a competition, but I listened the shit out of it. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's never a competition until you win it, and then it was a competition all along. So something that's been on my mind, actually, this is not related to your leadership stuff. Oh, I guess it kind of is because it's something that you as a leader probably had to deal with is the notion of interviewing and how much it sucks. It just sucks for everyone involved. I think like it sucks. At, so lately, uh, I feel like I've, I, I've done my fair amount of being the interviewee and the interviewer. I lately have been kind of reflecting more on the notion of being the interviewee after like at this point in my career. And every time I think about it, it just, it just pisses me off. And, and it just makes me like, it makes a knot just magically appear in my stomach. Yeah. I definitely feel that when I allow myself to drift off into fantasy land of, Oh, what if opportunity X from company Y came by and I just had to take it just the mental reality of, so what would actually happen? They would talk to me. I talked to the recruiter. They would start setting up interviews and my life would be a nightmare for the duration. Mm -hmm. And it would end in a non-zero chance of humiliating, soul-crushing defeat. Mm -hmm. That whole process is so onerous as to keep people in jobs for a lot longer, I think. Like, I wonder what percentage of people are in their jobs because they know I could go get another job, but that's like anywhere between one and five interviews, each of which is going to be a fucking nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like uh, one in five interviews. Well, between one and five interview processes. Right. Yes. Each of which will contain probably multiple interviews. In some yep. cases, uh, an absolutely heinous number of interviews. <laughs> Unbounded, right? Like, oh, yeah. hey, could you come back and talk to, you know, Bob in accounting? Yep. Uh, and, and, like, potentially exercises and take-home stuff or, or, like, paperwork to fill out and schedules to do and also having to manage, like, lying to your current job about it constantly yeah which also really sucks yeah yeah looking for a job on the dl is like uh its own sort of nightmare because yeah. you're having to source leads through a dark network mm -hmm. and not tip anybody off yeah it all sucks all of it sucks man there's I, i'm at some point just a spoiler alert I am certain we're going to find a golden shard of light peeking through the dense clouds of this topic somewhere along the way. But it is fundamentally in this industry, interviewing from top to bottom is a total shit show that people yeah. don't seem to care about improving very much. Certainly not systematically. Yeah. One of the things that's jumped out at me a lot more as I think about it this time around is that at this point, 
like I, I've gone through interviews at several phases of my career and a lot of the time those interviews have been a lot more about I I think I have some like raw kernel of like talent or ability or something and that's about it. Like I don't have I don't have that much to offer in terms of proof of work or practical experience. Uh, this is like back when I was first starting, but it was just right. all about convincing someone to take a chance on you versus now if I am going if I'm going to apply for jobs tomorrow, like I've been doing this long enough and well enough that I'm by the time I'm applying for a job, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be good at that job. Uh, especially once I get through the first screening call and the person's like, here's what we need. I like I know enough about myself and about what all of those job requirements actually translate to in real life to be able to say like, I would kill it at that job or this is not a, like, this is not a good fit. Let's just go ahead and call it. Yeah. And knowing that, and then, then thinking about interviews where interviews have this magical ability to wipe a lot of that away. Uh, it's like, let's, let's look, put aside for a moment, your years of experience and, references you might be able to list and you know public work you might be able to point point to and let's just pretend that you have like done this job in a vacuum and test you as such yeah because we have a process and yeah, we would we like you process. to conform to that process irrespective of, of any of the body of work that got us to talk to you in the first place that was just <laughs> to get you in the door and now you are on equal footing with anonymous rando 237 that's yep. your new name Welcome two three seven to the process. Like why why can I not just trade in some capital? Like why where's the where's the exchange rate for public programmer capital for job interview clout? So I will tell you when and where this gets better. When you are interviewing for VP roles and above. Mm-hmm. The end. That's it. Everybody <laughs> else is an anonymous fucking rando run through the same fucking ringer, and it's endless. Uh, have, have we talked about the crane game thing? Like that metaphor no. of one of the reasons I hate interviewing is it's a crane game where you have this in, you know, the interior of your skill set is like a topographical map, but it's like all these stuffed animals in a crane game. And mm-hmm. all these people can do is like try to sample it by reaching the crane arm down and trying to grab something and they start grabbing it and let it go. And you're like, I stopped over here and over here and I'm really good at this and I'm really good at this but nobody asks you any of that shit nobody asks yeah. you what you're actually good at what they what they say is here are the needs and so here are the three predetermined places we're going to drop a crane and if it doesn't scoop anything up in those three places you are rejected and we immediately think that you are useless and you're like I've spent the last five years killing it in real jobs and you're telling me because you you attempted a few samples uh, mm-hmm. that you attempt the same three samples with everyone for fairness sake or consistency sake, whatever, the number of false negatives that produces is really harmful. And, and I think there's such a bias in our industry uh, against false positives at the expense of allowing lots of false negatives. So the default answer of no, interviews are about finding weaknesses in people. We're only looking for, you know, we have a really high technical bar. We're looking for top 5% candidates. Like, I understand the reasoning behind all of those. And I am also interested in building an exceptional team of exceptional people. But the systems that we have, you know, by default use to decide whether somebody is one of these people that's going to come in and uh, just do exceptional work for you. uh, Those are so busted. And the sampling techniques we use are so busted. And I think it's it's totally rote at this point to talk about whiteboard interviews, except we Mm -hmm. still fucking do them. (laughs) <laughs> they still happen. Oh, I think I know. we're going to have to talk about it until people stop. I know. I think so. I actually, uh, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because while you were talking about that, I was thinking about whiteboard interviews specifically. Whiteboard interviews are kind of a colloquialism at this point in, in the programmer world for really talking about a specific kind of interview, not just an interview that involves a whiteboard. Cause I've had interviews that involve whiteboards that were actually quite fun. Yep. But when we say whiteboard interview, we mean 
I am going to make you like program purely theoretically. You need to write out code on a whiteboard. And usually that means that the code that you are writing out is going to solve some like very fundamental computer science problem, which is problematic for two reasons. One, a lot of people in the industry, me and you included, do not have traditional computer science backgrounds at all. Mm -hmm. And also most of the jobs that you are applying for don't involve implementing basic computer science which this this actually reminds me you have to stick with me on this because okay. this is like a bit of a of a windy metaphor so i've been reading this book recently called foundry side which is like a fantasy fiction thing it's just like a lot of fun to read and it's cassette in like a kind of fantasy setting um but the interesting thing about it is that it kind of the thing that caught me and got me interested in reading it was I read an article, like a review of it, that said that it was basically like, what if cyberpunk tropes, but in fantasy? And so one of the ways that that comes up is the way that magic works in this book. Because they have magic, but there's no like wizards or spells or anything that you think of as normal magic. The way that it works is they like etch symbols on objects and... The symbols on objects tell the objects a story with some logic that is that basically tells them to behave differently than they would naturally. So, for example, one of the main characters has like a lockpick and she puts the lockpick in the lock and the lockpick talks to the door. And the door is like, after 11 o'clock at night, the only keys I will open for have to have seven teeth. You don't have seven teeth, so I can't open. And the lock's like, or the key, the lock pick is like, well, when you open, do you open inward or outward? And he says, outward, of course. And he goes, what about inward? If you open inward, that's not opening, right? And the lock's like, well, I guess not. And he's like, so seven teeth or no seven teeth, if you open inward, you're not breaking any of those rules, right? And the door's like, huh, yeah, I guess you're right. And he goes, okay, cool, so open up. And they open right up. Uh... So fast forward to a part of the book where it's kind of explaining the history of this. And they talk about gravity. This is the part that actually applies to the whiteboard interviews. So they talk about how in applying this, this like logic where you basically are, are programming, like it's essentially programming, you're giving this object some logic to follow that often tells it to do something different than what it would normally do. Gravity is one that comes up very often because all these people want to keep figuring out how to fly. But it turns out that gravity is this very, very, very fundamental rule. And it is very hard to tell an object, disobey the rules of gravity, like disobey the laws of gravity. However, they have figured out a different a way around it. So they have like horseless carriages. And the way the horseless carriages work is they convince all of the wheels that they are rolling downhill even though they are not rolling downhill. Mm -hmm. And so all the wheels roll forward. Uh, and so the book explains the way, the thing that they figured out is you can't violate the laws of gravity, but you can tell, you can change the logic around gravity. So for instance, you don't tell it that gravity behaves differently. If you want to like shoot an arrow that will fly straight forever, you don't tell it that the laws of gravity behave differently. You instead tell it that the ground is in front of it rather than below it. And then you just say, go ahead and obey gravity. Just do what you would normally do, except that the ground is in front of you. And then it just like proceeds like it normally would, except it's flying straight. And so all of, they've like come up with all of these very creative ways to, as the book says, follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit. Uh, and that lets them like basically like come up with all these hacks to like get the natural world to do things. So... That like stuck with me ever since I read it because, for one thing, like that is like relative to computer science, which here is the law of gravity. That like hacking around the laws of gravity and figuring out ways to take it into account and like bend it in creative ways without rewriting the fundamental rules is a lot of what most developers' job actually is, especially application developers. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of interviews and a lot of whiteboard interviews especially are basically saying it is a lot harder to formalize all of the ways you skirt around the fundamental rules. So instead we're going to ask you to just re-implement the fundamental rules 
because that that is like the one uniform thing we can all understand but it also just happens to be the one thing none of us actually do yeah huh yeah there are a lot of programming metaphors in that uh in that book it sounds like yeah Uh, what's the name of the book again foundry side it's very good i will send you a link we can put it in the show notes all right yeah the other thing that brought up for me was the idea of something i've been thinking a lot about lately is how flawed education is and how how much education teach teaches people to hate learning if teaching people computer science was or maybe it is i don't know i wasn't there um, if learning computer science is like learning history, I can't imagine anybody would go into computers as a field. And if they did, they would certainly have a rude awakening because mm-hmm. learning history up to a certain point is rote memorization of dates and events and uh, recitation, you know, rote res- recitation of facts when history is fucking amazing. History mm-hmm. is one of the most amazing challenging, life-affirming, deeply relatable things that exist in the world is thinking about the things that happened and what motivated people and what lessons there are and learning from the mistakes and missteps and good things of the past to behave better societally in the future. Mm -hmm. Like history is incredible and history is taught in a way that teaches people to hate history and hate learning. It's really bizarre. And the reason that I was trying to think of why we do this, why do we, you know, why do we teach to facts in a subject that is almost about everything else except for the facts? The dates aren't relevant, other than the other, they're incidental uh, in in the ways that they coincide or played with each other. But that's not the point of history. The, the facts are incidental in many cases, but they're easy to test. That's what's testable. Yeah. And so just like a shitty test suite that, val- you know, like if you've ever like used a uh, scaffolded test suite in a Rails app, that's like assert when I assign this variable, it is assigned. You're like, this is the <laughs> fucking stupidest test I've ever seen. But yeah. there's a, f- a false certainty. Yeah, it's easy to test, but that doesn't make it right. And so the easiness of testing computer science shibboleths, like have you been through a basic algorithms class? Mm-hmm. Do you understand fundamental aspects of how memory is allocated. And like you said, I think that that point is really good that the job primarily entails taking the the knowledge that we already have for those things and bending it into a shape that people didn't really anticipate and making trade-offs. And so much of the job is finding shortcuts through across the lawn. And there's yeah. so little in interviews that can test for that the tricky part is i think you and i i mean we've worked together enough and also just talked enough that this has come up in one way or another a couple times like what what interview techniques can we use to to test for this that are also not asking a really unreasonable amount of the the interviewee uh, you know, because it always comes down to, well, the way that you test the person's ability to exist in this like wider problem space where really it's all about the the connections between all of the different topics and not so much about the individual topics themselves. The way you test that is you give them a much more complex problem and you give them a lot more time to work on it and you have like invite them back to like, talk about their solution. But now you just ask the person to do like five or six hours of work in their free time, which is either just on like it's either uh, inconsiderate or actually just not possible for them given other constraints in their life. Right. And it creates a selection bias against a lot of the kinds of people that you want to work with. Yep. There are problems with all these proposed solutions, and I think there are some potential solutions out there, but I'm not done complaining about interviews yet. Um, (laughs) All right. As a manager, interviewing is a total shit show. And I think I want to talk about what's happening behind the scenes that a lot of engineers don't know. If you've never been, I think a lot of engineers have been on the hiring team for things, but I think most engineers and, you know, software developers don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. All they know is, I go in, I talk to this group of people, interview one, I wait to hear something for a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Then they call me back, interview two. I'm a little pissed and frustrated because I'm actually talking to other companies and this one sounded pretty good, but I'm, I guess I'll come back. And, and then what I, and I hear nothing for like another week and a half or two weeks. And then they call me back and say, oh, you know, Sally wasn't in the office that day. Can you come back and meet with Sally? You'd be working with her. She's really excited to meet you. You come back and you don't know if Sally didn't like you or what happened, but you don't hear back for a long time and then you're in limbo. And then you finally give up. You're like, fuck this. I, I'm moving on with my life. And they call you back. And best case scenario, you hear, you hear something. But in a lot of cases, you hear nothing forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's a, and what's going on behind the scenes is that's accurate. Sally was out of town. They don't know what team they're going to hire you on to, right? They, a lot of times they're hiring and they, they, they have an open rec for one thing. People didn't really talk about who's, which team was going to get this rec. And there was a little fighting about this. And there was not necessarily agreement on what criteria they were going to interview on for this given rec. Uh, the people weren't on the weren't briefed on who's going to take what parts of the interview, so it's a little bit ad hoc. Somebody grabs this, you hear the same questions multiple times because they're not really communicating beforehand. Somebody really cares about code quality and code style, and they want to talk about code style. Another person doesn't care about anything except for like esoteric language features, and they're going to talk your ear off about it. They don't even ask you any questions. <laughs> This is all, this really happens. This is real. This ha- This is what your interview is going to be like at seven out of 10 tech companies. And in the meantime, so you interview and you think you're, you think you may have done it. You think, it, well, at least it went well. Some of it felt like a spitting contest where, you know, they were trying to prove that they were tech, you know, how, how strong they were technically. Somebody asked you a question that clearly they learned about two weeks ago, but now ask you as if you should have known it your whole life. <laughs> oh my god i've been on every single one of these interviews these are these are real because i'm calling them from interviews yep. that i myself as a manager have let happen <laughs> and for shame and so and then they don't circle up afterwards sally really was out of town and she and they decided later on hey we don't really want to open this rec for these other teams but this could be a fit for your team why don't you come you know like she's like okay well i could see him working out on my team let we we can open a rec for that let's figure it out you come meet sally she goes yeah it didn't really excite me everybody else liked him but i you know this is my hire now i'm the new i'm essentially the hiring manager at this point so let's put him in the maybe pile interview a couple more people if it doesn't work out, we'll fall back to this candidate. And all of these things happen and you're in, like in hell this whole time, mm-hmm. not hearing anything. The team doesn't circle back up. They drop the ball. You move on with your life and they go, eh, oh, well, we missed it. We'll get the next one. And that's real. That's the the typical yep. interview shit show. And that's the problem with interviews is like anything, it's not a single broken thing. It's a systemic problem. And buttoning all of those things up Literally, the only way to button all of that shit up is for a company to actively decide they're not going to put up with that. Mm -hmm. And that means the leadership of the company has to prioritize, hey, hiring is the most important thing that we do. It's in, you know, in our, certainly in our top three activities, it is as important as any value generating activity that we do. We are not going to drop this. This is something that we prioritize. This is something we're going to start working on. We're going to have as much processes as necessary, hopefully not more, um, so that all those problems we just talked about don't happen. And we have some mechanism by which we get better and better at this over time. Mm-hmm. And the individuals involved in this get better and better at this over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really curious if there are any companies out there who who like actually are are currently proud of their interview process. Like if there are people who would say, we have we have done this work and we're very proud of what we have come up with because in my experience I've had I've had two there are two main categories that my interviews fall into. One is we don't really have that much of a process, so we're kind of winging it, which can be okay, but can also very easily turn into the thing that you described where it's like you get asked the same interview question twice or Someone shows up with an algorithm problem that they've never heard of and also is missing a crucial piece of information for you to even do the problem, which has also happened to me. (laughs) Uh, Or I've been on the other side where every single person that you interview with says, yeah, we have this process. It is super annoying. It takes a really long time. 
It requires you to jump through about a thousand more hoops than we think you should. Uh, I'm really sorry, but there's no getting around it. So strap in because yep. like, you know, we'll try and make it as easy for you as possible or as, as painless as possible, but it's going to suck and you're going to have to deal with a lot of bullshit on the way. Uh, and I've never, ever, ex- like, it's always one of those. Yep. So there is a middle ground, but you don't usually see it. It just starts with moving hiring to the top of your priority list. We're not fucking around. This is something we care about. This is the key to the future of this company and uh, the quality of our team. And it's something we don't compromise on. The process by which we hire people. It's never going to be perfect, but it's not something we're going to let slide anymore and let be a side project. You know, hiring is not a side hustle. It's <laughs> yeah. the fucking job. It's the job. If you're a manager and hiring feels like it's your side hustle, you are in big trouble. Yeah. Uh, or you're because either your company is completely stagnant or you're fucking over the people that you're trying to hire. So um, I will tell you about the best hiring process I've ever seen. And it's actually at my company, but it sure as shit isn't in the engineering team. (laughs) The product team has an in-person exercise. And this does require some prep on the part of the person that they're interviewing. But it is a a real core sample of product management work. Where it is something that requires a few hours of effort on their part off-site. And then they come Mm on-site and present what their their thinking is. It's a core sample of what the work of a product manager is, which is obviously very different than the taking a core sample of what an engineer does. Yeah. But what I want to tr- strive for, the acceptance criteria shocked me because uh the the v- VP of product that I talked to said, "I know the interview is going really well when it's fun and we're all having a good time in there." and we're collaborating and enjoying things, and it's going well, that's a really great signal. And I know it's not going well when we're not having any fun. And mm-hmm. it feels it feels like drudgery to go through this person's presentation and through collabor- trying to collaborate with them. Um, I won't get into the details of the interview because it's not super relevant to uh, what engineers might do, but the criteria of it's fun when it's going well. And I've seen a couple of these now where you you bring the person in and you're doing something together and you're kind of just jamming. It feels yeah. like you're just jamming with them. And this is kind of speaking to Trek's blog post about, you know, it, candidate auditions are better than candidate interviews. I don't think I've read this blog post. Oh, it's good. Trek has a very good blog post about this called like Tired Engineering Interviews, Wired Engineering Auditions. But it doesn't go into any detail about how to pull one of these together. But the fundamental concept behind it is really sound. And I think the idea of an audition somehow coupled with the acceptance criteria of you know it's going well when it's fun and you iterate until you have something that works like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to... So I can tell you what what I'm working toward that seems to be working. And it is the, it involves a mock code review where we go through somebody else's oh. code together and say, Hey, help us find, you know, in the, you know, we have samples in different languages and we say, okay, let's go through a code review of code. It's actually the same code exercise that we send them. We send them a short code exercise that we ask people not to spend more than like 90 minutes on. Um, and it's very, you know, it's very basic. So that's also means they know the problem. Uh, so when they come in to do a code review of somebody else's, they see a different approach that has mm-hmm. some bugs in it and they're like, and so we see, Hey, does this person, depending on their level of experience, are they, you know, what kind of stuff do they evaluate for? Uh, what's it like to get a code review with this person? So let's go through a typical day. Like what does a person do during the course of a typical day? We'll do a code review together. We'll do a design exercise together where here's a system that we might build in real life. Uh, mm-hmm. something or something that we have built together. Um, it's not perfect because, you know, some people are going to have an advantage if they've built something exactly like this before. I would love to be able to say, here's a menu of three or four things that you could choose from. Let's pick it and design it together. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working toward is an interview process that feels more like that. And then, you know, obviously you still have culture interview and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that for 
for several reasons. The biggest one is the fact that very few of those, if, if not, I think none of those involve sitting down with a person you just met whose sole job is to judge you and trying to code next to them. Because like, I don't know if you know, but pair programming can already be awkward Mm -hmm. with a person that you actually work with and you already have the job trying to do that thing. Like I've, I've paired with lots of people there. The hand, the number of people that I have been like really, really comfortable and productive pairing with is maybe a fifth of the people I've paired with ever. Now, three-fifths of those have been just fine. Like, they're not bad. But it was really only, like, a fifth of the time that I feel like, man, I did I did some really, really top-quality work with this other person. None of those instances have occurred in interviews, for sure. Yep. And so I, I like that, that this really it doesn't make you do that, but it also optimizes for... I mean, this is it's genius, because you're right. Like, if you want to put, a, like, programmers in a room and have them get excited... It is not often the case that the thing that is going to get them into that flow with other people is sitting down and programming together when they just met. But it is very, very feasible that you put a bunch of programmers in a room and get them talking about a problem or talking about a product or something. And suddenly, like, all of those programmers are tuned into a thing that they also love doing, which is talking about problems, even if it doesn't involve coding right that moment. And suddenly you're off to the races in, you know, fun conversation flow land, which is very fun. I have had that inter- happen in interviews. And having, like, walking out of an interview and and thinking, like, I just had a lot of fun and, like, I may have made a friend or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that feels great. That is such a good feeling. Yep. And trying to get to that without the cost associated with like what we were trying to do at Frontside back in the day with full day of bringing them on site and pair programming and putting them through this artificial thing. It could still be fun, but it was definitely exhausting and definitely artificial. And so there's a, mm-hmm. a blog post one of my coworkers shared with me called Killing the Coding Interview. I'll, I'll post this in the show notes as well. And it talks about how you can suss out the question, can they code without putting them into a wildly artificial environment like Codility or a pair programming interview on site with people that are, you know, have their arms folded and are judging your keystrokes. You know, that's not, that's not a natural habitat. I deeply empathize with this because I am a social problem solver. Are you Mm going to let me phone a friend during my code interview? Is it going to look bad on me if I sit here and Google stuff and then I send a tweet out saying, hey, I'm running into this weird thing. Like I solve problems. I don't associate myself as the world's greatest software developer, but mm-hmm. I knew that I could use code to solve problems and and much of that happens for me socially. So here, I'm going to take your superpower away and then you know fight your way out of this box. And you're like, what? No. <laughs> so... I'm very sensitive to interviews that basically rob people of their superpowers and using extensive screening to get to know somebody first to understand what their superpowers are. And I don't yet have a scalable way to do that to like, Mm -hmm. so, so what I would do with a, with a Chris Freeman is I would spend the time looking into this candidate and understanding where their superpowers are likely. And then maybe just asking them, Hey, what would you want me to know about you? Yeah. Who would I talk to to find out? what's great about working with you and is this a does this role sound like you Mm -hmm. and my experiences with that are so good that the idea i don't know so i really struggle with the the way that the industry has tried to scale hiring by first and foremost like okay throw away everything that we know does work and then just cram a bunch of people into a pipeline and then hope for the best and have a really shitty hit rate yeah, I I actually you mentioned like the the front side interview and I think that this uh this relates a lot because the front side interview like yes, you're right. It a a day like a day of of being in someone else's workplace and being on is exhausting, really no matter no matter how you slice it. But the front side interview was the best version of that I've ever I've ever done. And the thing that has stuck with me the most uh in the 
the thing that really like has informed a lot about how I approach interviews has been the fact that the way it was structured, I would say maybe, maybe 40, 30 to 40% of the interview process was actually spent coding. None of that was spent on an exercise of any kind. A little bit of it was spent doing like front side work uh, where I wasn't even typing. I was like the, the navigator in a pairing thing. And then the other one was I was the driver and I think you and I paired on like a project I've been working on, but there was also this massive, like several hour block when you added it all up to, to sit and talk. And it was to sit and talk about, you know, at the end it was like, we're going to wrap up and talk about the interview process and the job and, and where you see yourself and how, what you thought about everything. But there was also just like, talk about, Stuff you like about programming. Talk about what you've been working on. Talk about what you would like to be working on. And it just opened up this massive... It, like, it wasn't even we're going to do a talking exercise. It was, no, no, we are just going to have a conversation as people. Mm-hmm. And that, like, A, it punctuates the much more high-stress parts of the interview with parts where you get to kind of relax and just have a conversation with someone that isn't like very clearly just asking you a list of questions to see what you say so they can write them down and score them later. Mm -hmm. And it also gives you a great idea for, do I want to work with these people and are their expectations reasonable? And it presumably gives, you know, it gave you and Charles and everyone else a good, a, a way to do your version of that as well. You know, is this a person I would want to work with? And I feel like that, very often gets lost like it's one of the first things to go out the window when you look at a lot of the more formalized interview processes and i think there's some reason for that like there you know unconscious bias is a thing and a way that you can help prevent unconscious bias is by really standardizing what your interview process is but at the same time being part of a like really squeaky clean hygienic uh uniform interview process like just sucks like it just isn't fun for anyone and it really doesn't give you a a, any insight into what it's like to work at the company unless the company is going to be that cold and boring uh as well which is not the the picture you want to show to people that you're trying to get to come work at your company right it's funny because several of the things that you mentioned about having liked about the interview process came about because we did a couple of shitty ones and people were like, mm-hmm. wow, we programmed all day. You guys didn't reserve any time to talk about how things yeah. went. And I was like, oh, we should really do that. <laughs> and what what's so weird about interviewing is that the bar is so low to not have a shitty interview. Mm-hmm. It's so low that just giving a shit at all about it and caring about the experience that the interviewer is, or the interviewees are having is a significant step up from the default right now and yeah. deciding to to listen to feedback and improve your interview process ask for and improve your interview process based on feedback is something that i would prob- probably puts you in the top 10% of companies mm-hmm. and and if you practice it it's something that you do frequently and so you start with some of these things like some of these ideas of have an attitude of an audition versus demonstration of a, taking a core sample through conversations or mm-hmm. whiteboarding. Um, that the idea is to surface a candidate's strengths as well as their weaknesses and understand mm-hmm. both sides of them. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's one of those things where you just, if you just like stop and think about it, like if, if you have people who, who as part of their job, they spend some portion of their work week, thinking about how do we make this interview process better? How do we elicit the feedback to help us learn how to make this interview process better? Uh, And how do we write that down in a way that other people can see it? None of which are like, we work at software companies, much of which build products. And it turns out that is the exact process you use to build products. Right. (laughs) Uh, So like we have the tools to do this. Yeah. We just like so many people aren't even doing that bare minimum so i do see like there is a glimmer of hope there so many of our conversations are about talking about problems and not promising Mm -hmm. any solutions because you know this is us just talking to each other bitching about stuff and it's fine but this is one that i've specifically been working on actively and throwing my heart in and effort into for several years now and 
the fact that I'm still struggling with it tells me it's not an easy problem to solve, but I, I really do think some of it is just, you can move the goalpost back a little bit be like, no, it's just make it suck less and you're, you're mm-hmm. on the right track. One thing fittingly, ironically, I don't know. I was looking for documents of some kind on my computer and I ran across your original offer letter we sent you and I just sent it to you over Slack. I'm waxing nostalgic about <laughs> the the offer letter we put together. But even then I was like, I think you might've been the first official offer letter we ever sent anybody. Like we're gonna uh, button our shit up <laughs> and look so, professional. Yeah. I was because I remember having to write you back and say, Brandon, there's no place for me to sign this offer letter. And you were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess that's a thing we should add. Hold on. Let me add a signature line to this PDF and send you another one. <laughs> <laughs> we are real uh, grown-ups running a, re- running a real grown-up company. <laughs> uh, welcome to our Fisher-Price software company. We are not two developers stacked on each other's shoulder wearing a business suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Good lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have I have both copies of that offer letter saved in, in Dropbox somewhere. Yeah, that's a winner right there. I forgot about yeah. that. That's right. It was our first, Fisher Price, my first offer letter. Yeah, I remember Googling really offer letter examples. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that part, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. What's so fun about that is that's really where we are as an industry. Like Fisher Price, my first technical interview. That's a nice thing right now is the bar is so low that I can honestly tell people, hey, if you want to make a difference in this industry, go ahead, just give a shit hard enough to be a manager for a while. And, mm-hmm. and just by caring, you will raise the bar for what managers in this industry do and um bump around in the dark for three or four years and and don't give up in that time frame and then you'll find like you're more effective than most of the managers you've probably ever had by then so it's a little bit of a bummer but it's also good yeah i'm trying to think about how you could put a lot of this stuff into practice in a way that uh is also scalable and and has some like has some kind of like built-in fairness checks on the side of the company doing it. So what I'm thinking about is that a lot of companies, when they approach this interview process, they don't, they don't have a clear question that they are asking. What they're getting at is, should we hire this person? But they don't really know what it is that they're using to measure. Mm -hmm. And so they end up like quote unquote, solving that problem by going wide. Right. So it's like, well, we're going to have you interview with seven people. Yep. And none of those seven people are going to ask you very compelling questions, but they're all going to do it. Okay. So this is actually easy. This is easy if you do something hard first. Okay. Just like Kent Beck talks about where he says, making changes is easy. First, you make the change easy. Warning, this may be hard to make the easy change. Yeah. This is an easy change after you do the hard work of defining your engineering ladder with extremely clear criteria at each stage. So that when you open a rec, you're actually just pulling the job description out of that stage in the ladder for that job. And you mm-hmm. go, okay, I know, like, because if I was going to promote somebody to that role here, I would know what they'd have to hit. That also means I know what I need to hire for if I'm going to hire it from outside. Otherwise, I would just promote it yeah. from within. But th- it's the exact same criteria. And so you roll that up and you go, okay, here are the themes. The stuff that this person is going to need to be able to do is work independently on this, have a solid knowledge of that, have these personality traits that they've cultivated. I'm looking for adaptability. I'm looking for evidence of that they learn. I'm looking for whether they're dependable. I'm looking for whether they have mentorship capability. Whatever those things are that matter to you for that role, you pull those out and you go, okay, we got these things we need to evaluate for. I'm going to pick my three or four uh, best interviewers here and set up a one or two day interview process where they talk to six people. Four of them are people evaluating for all this stuff. Then they're going to have a culture interview with a VP. And then they're going to have a final interview with potentially a C-level person. Mm-hmm. It's really not complicated You because you start divvying that up and you go, okay, who are the people that are interviewing for which things? Okay. They're going to be, you know, this person, that sounds like a good match for the 
uh, and you have a, a list of things they could do. That sounds like a good match for this person doing the code review exercise. This sounds like a good match for this person doing a whiteboard design exercise. This sounds like, you know, these two people should just talk about code and architecture, and this one should take these other, measure whatever way we decide to measure code capability uh, this other way. Yeah. It's, it's really not that hard if you do the hard work first of defining what people actually do at your company, which is why I've come to say, if you don't have a clearly defined engineering ladder, stop and do that first. Because that's yeah. critical to your hiring process. Yeah, absolutely. It's usually a very bad sign if you are going into an interview and you're and you're stopping and going like, "Wait, which which position is this person applying for? Like, mm-hmm. what what level am I interviewing them for?" And because it, 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 it's even worse if if the answer is like, "Oh, good question." Let them come in and just interview, and then we'll figure the level out later. Is the thing I have <laughs> yeah. said in not the distant past. I have absolutely <laughs> fucked that up. Oh man. I mean it's so it's 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 so easy to think that that's harmless in the moment, but having been having done it both ways, the moment you have gone into an interview with a very clear picture of what exactly you were looking for, it is impossible to go back and not have it feel just incredibly wrong. Until you actually start there and then they redefine your role fundamentally after you start and then you're like, "What the fuck? I knew what I was going to do Psych! here." Which is probably the 90% case, but hopefully it's not too bad. Hopefully it's not too drastic. Well, should we wrap it up there? I think that's a good place to stop. I mean, we can complain about the inter, you know, how shitty interview processes are forever. And I think maybe we spent too much time talking about solutions. It's just literally, that's where I go. That's what I spend. I would say when my brain goes idle, it probably spends 30% of its time thinking about this problem. So I can't help myself. God bless you, Brandon Hayes. <laughs> Some, someday I'm going to care so hard, good things are actually going to come out of it. <laughs> Plenty of good things have come out of it. That's true. Don't sell yourself short. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's been an interesting day, and I'm looking forward to see what the future brings us uh, in our humble little podcast. I love it. Yeah, that- I got to go hunt down Yehuda. I'm not letting this webpack thing go. Yeah. Let's, I would love, I would love that. This isn't, you know, we, we, we don't know what this thing is yet, but I, my sense is it's not one of those things where we have a guest on every week, but you know, when, uh, when a Yehuda is willing to come on your podcast, you just make that shit happen. <laughs> yep. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. But I will do this with you until the end of time. Cause this is an enjoyable part of my week. Me too, buddy. Before we go, we should probably remind people that we have a Twitter account at copy paste pod. And I'm on Twitter, should you care about such things. I'm Ted Viking. And I'm on Twitter at 15 letter max. And I'm on Instagram, but nobody cares. <laughs> so I'm not even going to tell you my username. It's only Sonic Pictures. It's super weird. <laughs> it's super weird. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Chris, I'm always happy to see you and talk you to too, you. Okay. Have a good week. Bye, everybody. See you next time.